In modern sort of language, the psalmist might want to say to us this morning, God rules, and that's something to shout about. I mean, right, if you just let your eyes fall over that psalm again, it just seems like the psalmist wants to shout that God's got his hands on this world. And I know we've talked about this often over the years, but I think it's important. I I think sermons don't really have much meaning apart from a a context that's honest and real uh, about human life and about a local community. And I think we just have to say, given the time that we live in, and it's not utterly different than other times in the last 2,000 years, but certainly it's a time that we all feel that isn't that just wishful thinking? That, you know, God's got his hand over everything, on everything, and that he rules. And that's just a bit of fantasy. Maybe even some people might even accuse us of a kind of religious delusion. And I get it. I mean, just think about the current state of international relations, seeming constant warfare or threats of war, brutal dictators, I mean, whatever you might think of immigration, this is not a political statement, but I just read again this morning, that doesn't, the, 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 the people of, uh, who are suffering in Guatemala are saying, we don't care what Mexico or the U.S. says, we're coming. And I don't care what kind of policy they institute. So I only, I only bring that up, now again, not as a political thing to say, but as a, just to say something about human angst, that real human beings have to live under real brutal dictators. And it's in our newsfeed every day along with racism and poverty and various forms of oppression and exploitation. Putting it less social, there's also personal crushing debt that a lot of people live under. Or think of all the friends and family you know where you have spouses or children estranged from each other. I mean, it would seem more logical to say that the false gods seem alive and well and that the one true God seems more hidden than revealed. And plus, I know us, and this is where sermons have to make sense, you know, in the midst of a community. I also know us. I know us very well. And I know that 99 or 100% of the people in this room desperately want to be God's agent. They want to be agents for good in the world. But again, as we've said before, our hearts can only break so much. And I'm also aware that many people like us are beginning to feel a very definite and real compassion fatigue. It just seems that no matter how hard we work or preach or give money or send money overseas or whatever, it just seems like nothing ever really changes. And I've seen countless people around me just feeling like they want to give up under the relentless feelings of a kind of numb depression. So then how are we to sort of rightly and workably and peacefully and fruitfully think about how it is that God has a relationship to this world? And I think the best way to say it in a brief sermon is to say that, yes, all those things I named are real, and yes, all the human reactions to them in any way are real. It's just that we want to say that something simultaneously is going on, something that includes all of that human brokenness but transcends it, and it gets back to that old spiritual. He's got the whole world in his hands. Can you recall who wrote those words? Who sang those words? The deep oppression from which those words came? That's the both and 
I'm just sorry to tell you, we just don't have the luxury of being intellectually and spiritually weak and just falling off on one side or the other. We live in, to put it in big theological words, in an eschatological tension where the kingdom is inaugurated amongst us in the person and work of Jesus, but it's not yet consummated. And if we're to think greatly about God, then we have to think something like this, that God in his loving wisdom for now allows rival kingdoms allows darkness to still have a place in the world. What we have to find a way is to live in that tension, understanding I'm suggesting that over that tension is this transcendent, not idea. It's not primarily a transcendent eschatological or last times or fulfilled times idea. What I want you to see is that over that tension we all feel in our heart, look at me, is a transcendent person not an idea, not a theological concept. A person who we just read before the foundations of the world. So before there were human tensions, before there was human greed and corruption, there was a person. And that person started all this, and that person is going to complete it. Um, she's not a good friend, she's just sort of an acquaintance, but Kari Reeves has published recently a, a book of prayers called Canyon Road. And one of them I thought was applicable for what we're thinking about here this morning. She writes, I'm tired now of the responsibilities. Fatigue surrounds my weary bones. Too tired to long. Too tired to desire. I rest in the surety of your strength, cradled. So what Psalm 97 gives us this morning is a gift, a gift of an answer to the question, who is minding this world? And the psalmist wants to shout, the Lord reigns. You see it in your text. He's the most high over all the earth, over all gods, and he'll set everything right. And again, it's, it's, it's worth more time than we have to think about in a, in a sermon, but think again of the brilliance of what I'm about to read to you and again, the oppression from which it came. I mean, I can't imagine the depths of confusion. I, I can't even imagine what it would be like to live in a community that thinks you're only three-fifths human. But it's Martin Luther King who wrote... There's a creative force in this universe working to pull down the gigantic mountains of evil. A power that is able to make a way out of no way and to transform dark yesterdays into bright tomorrows. And this is the famous bit you have all heard. For the arc of the moral universe is long, but it bends towards justice. And I think when we don't experience the calm and peace of this God-is-at-work worldview, then this is what causes human beings to turn to all kinds of addictions and idols of various sorts. But when we do experience this really deeply in our being, that there is a God at work transcending all the stuff we can name, when we do experience this, then we're able to drop the pursuit of being some sort of Lord ourselves and to just live a quiet, faithful life of service in our very complicated world. We don't deny its complications. 
I mean, I don't know about you, but I would be so impressed if somebody figured out how to do healthcare for over 300 million people. I don't know how you do that. It's a very complicated issue. Forget the politics. It is a very complicated issue. International trade? Again, forget the current politics. It's a very complicated issue. And I would be so happy if some genius came amongst us in some country of the world and figured it out. So we are able, or we're meant to be able to hang on to the fact that this is complicated and none of us in this room get it and to stay present to that reality as non-anxious people because we know there's a God who does have it. So we can just go about our days little by little in whatever places we might find ourselves amongst humanity, just little by little bending the arc each day towards life, towards the good creation and the good love of God. Well, our reading in Revelation 22 this morning gets us precisely, obviously, to end times, to eschatology, to fulfillment. And you have these words, you know, written almost two millennial ago, look, I am coming soon. And in the same way that those words were to function amongst John's community and those who would have first heard the revelation, eschatology is always meant to be a way, at least in part, for the church to persevere in circumstances of crisis and trauma or just a circumstance in which you're waiting a really long time for resolution of something and it's not happening and to find a way of a a hopeful, joyful discipleship. And then verse 17 says in this lovely, evocative way, let the one who is thirsty come. So now just picture your own moments where you thirst for justice, where you thirst for the rightness of God to be in the various systems of humankind, that thirst that we all have. The text says, let those who thirst for justice and hope, you're invited to quench that thirst that you're invited to quench that heart's longing in the life-giving water of the assurance of God's final triumph of good over evil. It's in that hope, it's in that future hope to come that we quench this thirst. And then lastly, in in John 17, this beautiful, famous prayer of Jesus, you note that idea of oneness that Jesus prays for a oneness. And I think that this oneness, when we think of it in the context of which we're working this morning, think of this experience of oneness with God conveying to us this undeniable and powerful presence in the middle of whatever we're going through. And I just want you to feel that it's that presence, even in deep oppression, that allows spirituals, as we think of them, to be written. The incredible rhetoric of a Martin Luther King Jr. comes precisely out of oppression. Did not come out of a a wonderful retreat in the woods somewhere, as good as they are. This came out of deep oppression. Somehow, people in oppression find ways for their heart's desires to be quenched, and it's in, the, it's in this oneness and in this presence of the future, which is to come. It gives kind of a certainty about the future. So feel this thought with me. God is not nervous. Now just take a deep breath and feel that thought. God is not nervous. 
And the scriptural idea is that as that non-nervous heart penetrates ours, he then begins to guide our thoughts and our emotions and our desires. And we come to know that as long as we, the church, the universal church, are together as one with God, that's the oneness that Jesus has in mind, then we can face anything. In verse 26, Jesus said, I have made your very being known to them. Again, just feel that, your very being. God the Father, I, Jesus, have made your very being known to these, my followers. Let them know who you are and what you do. So again, it's this relationship that's meant to be a further source of hope and confidence, a way of cultivating expectation in the turmoil that goes on around us all day, every day. Well, as I was thinking of this yesterday, I I thought of something that um, the church council and a couple key lay people and our uh, teaching team are putting together this summer, uh, something we're going to call Summer Together, and you'll hear a lot more about it. But the underlying vision for this is, um, you know, I'm done June 30th. Jordan starts September 1st. We've got these two months. You know, what, Lord, what's the meaning of these two months? And weeks ago, as I began to pray that prayer, I just saw this vision of all of you being held, that, that you're held by leadership, you're, you're held in love, you're held by a history, You're held by a future to come. But in my vision, I saw that you just weren't held, but that you were being carried along. And so we are working on, we're almost done, working on what I think is going to be a great summer for you guys to just feel what I'm commending to you this morning, to feel that whether it's international relations or a personal problem with one of your children or a church thing, that we're never abandoned in these things, that we are always companioned along the way. For this is our Father's world. He is creator, savior, and sustaining superintendent. And humanity remains God's project. We live in a Trinitarian bathed world in which by God's loving and wise design, it's perfectly suited both to finding him and serving him. Divine intention is not in doubt. One day, Jesus will hand over the kingdom to his Father and everything will be perfect. No more tears, no more pain, no more of that brutal tension. Just the knowledge that God has been working on our behalf, as the text said this morning, from before the foundation of the world, through creation, and up to the new heavens and the new earth. And we're invited to a oneness sort of participation in God's work, by modeling our life then on the incarnate Christ. And I love those thoughts. I love them not just because they're true, but to me, this means that the church, the people of God, can cultivate habits of the heart from which we love extravagantly, take joyful risks, and forgive generously. Given this worldview, we never need to fight, quarrel, or grab. For we are at peace. Why? Because the kingdom of God is alive and well. As Jesus said, it's growing like a mustard seed. Or to think of Daniel's vision, the kingdom is spreading all over the earth, dethroning kings, crushing empires, until it arrives at its stunning fullness.
And I just wish we could do an object lesson. Everybody get out your phone, not really, and open your newsfeed and notice what's there and then take this in. The kingdom is spreading over the whole earth, dethroning kings, crushing empires, until it arrives at its stunning fullness, as we just read in Revelation 22. The task of contemporary discipleship is to admit what's real and put it in its place and then find our way of being present to it as non-anxious people, as the people of God who is not nervous. So in our quiet moment here, I want to invite you to a, a couple of questions. First of all, can you think, where are you waiting to see God move? Could be something cultural. It could be something in your family, in your own person. Just notice for a moment, where are you waiting to see God move? And then place that, as I've suggested, under this transcendent notion that began before the foundations of the world and will have its completion in the new heavens and the new earth. And then secondly, you might consider for a moment, how are you being called to move as his cooperative friend? So we both wait to see God move we also want to notice how we might be being called to move as his cooperative friend.